Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It was Philip Yancey who said of the word grace, it is the world's best last word. Today we begin a four-part sermon series simply entitled Refresh, the transforming power of God's grace. Over the next uh, four weeks, we are going to identify four individuals who are recipients of the transforming grace of God. And along the way, we're going to learn some valuable lessons about God's amazing grace. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, draw your sword, turn to Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read in your hearing verses 1 to 14 of that chapter. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 3, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 14. Please hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why, the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hibites, and Jebusites, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. 
For Moses, it was just a same old day. He woke up in the same old bed, put on the same old sandals, ate the same old breakfast, went to the same old job. He felt the same old wind against his weathered face. He sweltered under the same old sun in the sky. He was walking in the same old desert, looking after the same old sheep. On this day, Moses was doing the same old thing he had been doing for the last 14,600 days. For the last 40 years, Moses had been tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And this day was just like every other day. Moses had fallen from a great height over the last 40 years. You might recall the story of Moses that for the first 40 years of his life, he was trained in Egypt to be a somebody. But then something happened that drastically changed his life. One day he went out to his own people, saw an Egyptian taskmaster brutally beating a Hebrew slave. Moses looked this way and then that, and then he assaulted the Egyptian taskmaster. He killed him with his own two fists and buried him in the sand. The next day, he went out and found two of his own people, two Hebrews, as they were fighting. He tried to separate them and say, guys, don't do this. One of them looked at him and said, what are you going to do to us? The same thing you did to the Egyptian? What, are you going to kill us and bury us in the sand? When Moses heard this, he was petrified. Word of this got back to Pharaoh. Now Moses has a rap sheet. And Moses is accused of murder. So he runs. He gets as far away as possible. He goes into the desert. There he meets a woman. He gets married. And for the last 40 years, this one who had been trained to be a somebody quickly concluded, I'm going to be a nobody. And I'm just going to die in this Midianite desert. Moses had fallen uh, a great height over the last some 40 years. On this same old day, he's probably about seven days into the desert, far away from family and friends. He's in the midst of a dry, arid climate. He's in a desert, not just physically, but also spiritually. For Moses, his soul is parched. His spirit is dry. For the last four decades, he's just been going through the motions. For him, life was absent of meaning and purpose. He found himself doing the dreaded profession of any Egyptian. For everyone in Egypt despised being a shepherd. And for the last 40 years, Moses had been a shepherd and these weren't even his sheep. He was a shepherd of borrowed sheep. Moses felt arid and dry. It's not that he didn't pray, but when he prayed, he, he felt like he was just shouting into the wind and nobody would hear him. He wasn't certain that God cared. He wasn't all that certain that God even knew the place where Moses was plopped. In the words of Tony Evans, for Moses... The get-up-and-go had gotten up and gone a long time ago. I wonder this day, do you know what it is to be in a dry, arid season of life? 
Do you know what it is to be in a spiritual desert? Maybe you've been there before. Maybe you're in it right now. You know what it is to just go through the motions and go through life, and you're just trying to do the same old thing, the same old day, every single day, and your goal is just to eke out existence and survival, make it through this day, get into bed, wake up tomorrow, and do the same old thing over and over and over again. Maybe you know what it is to be in a spot where you just feel empty and dry and arid and parched. Friends, this is Moses. Now on this given day, the life of Moses was about to change. He saw a bush that was on fire. It wasn't being consumed. Moses called it a strange sight. The strange sight was not that the shrub was on fire. No, for a seasoned shepherd like Moses in the dry, arid conditions of the desert, this was commonplace. It wasn't uncommon for a shrub to ignite and blaze. It would burn only for a short time, leave behind a pile of ashes. What made this so strange is that this bush was on fire. It was blazing, but it was not being consumed. This caught the attention of Moses. He went over to get a closer look at this strange sight. We are told that God saw that he had captured the attention of Moses. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses through the burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. The angel of the Lord. Anytime in the Old Testament when you find that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is none other than Jesus Christ. It's not an angel. It's not a given angel. It's not another named angel. This is an angel. It's a messenger. It is the angel of the Lord. And when you see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus who shows up in strange ways at strange times to speak to strange people. And here on this day, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses through the burning bush, said, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, here I am seems to me that Moses is not alarmed with this talking, flaming bush. I don't know about you, but I would be startled. I mean, if, if I walked around my house this afternoon and the landscape began to talk to me and call me by name, I think I would be a little alarmed. If you walked out of the sanctuary, went through the foyer, hung a right outside, and the weeping willow just said, Hey, Frank. Hey, Sally. How you doing today? I mean, I think that would capture your attention. It might set you back a couple of steps. Oh, but Moses, he's, he's not alarmed. When he hears his name, he just responds, here I am. I think part of the reason why Moses is not alarmed is because the way in which God calls his name. He speaks his name not once but twice. Moses, Moses. It's not that God has a stuttering problem. But consistently in the Bible, this repetition of a person's name is a mechanism used to disarm defensiveness. It communicates endearment, affection, friendship. So the Lord simply says to his servant, Moses, Moses. Moses is not defensive. He's not alarmed. In fact, uh, everything has been set at ease, and he just simply says, here I am. 
It's not the only time in the Bible that God uses this mechanism. You may recall that it's the young would-be priest in training named Samuel. And the Lord called him at night, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel thought it was his mentor, teacher, master, Eli. So he went into him and said, yes, sir, what do you need? Eli said, I didn't call your name. Go back to sleep. This happened not twice, but three times. Eventually, Eli said, God is calling you. When you hear him call your name again, just simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You hear the affection in the voice of David, don't you? When he gets word that his son Absalom has died, he cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if I had died instead of you, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son. Every father in the room can identify with the affection of David as he hears the news that his son had died and he would have longed to take the place of his son so that his son might be alive. And he just cries out, not once but twice, Absalom, Absalom. Jesus said in the New Testament, Martha, Martha. It's a term of affection. It's a term of endearment. Martha had just blasted Jesus because he had failed to reprimand Mary. And clearly Mary was just being lazy, seated at the feet of Jesus. All the while, Martha is busting her hump trying to get the pot rolls ready for a 13 hungry preachers. And Mary is leaving all the work just for Martha. She goes to Jesus, don't you care that Mary has left me to serve alone? I know you care, so tell her to help me. And Jesus, in a disarming, affectionate way, simply says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled, you're upset about many things. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken from her. In Acts chapter 9, it is the Lord who calls out to Saul as he's riding his horse to Damascus. And God knocks him off his high horse. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded, who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And once he blinded him by the light, he said to him, I'm going to use you in a mighty way, for you will be an apostle to the Gentiles. And all the while, he was welcoming this sinner into his presence, telling him, you're going to be used of me throughout the entire world. God just has a way of disarming our defensiveness, doesn't he? In our story, he just calls Moses by name not once but twice, Moses. Moses, take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God of your fathers. Did any of you... Um, Take off your shoes before you enter the sanctuary today. I mean, you're looking at me like, uh, preacher, uh, we never take off our shoes. Uh, this is not a bowling alley. This is a sanctuary. 
And furthermore, I mean, if, if we all took off our shoes, just look around at some of the people that are seated in this room. I mean, if we took off our shoes, it would smell like a bowling alley, right? I mean, the aroma of smelly feet and stale Lysol. I mean, I mean, who wants that? This is a sanctuary for crying out loud. We did not take off our shoes. Preacher, what are you saying? Okay, I understand. But at the very least, before you enter the sanctuary today, um, did you take off your pride? Before entering, did you take off your self-sufficiency? Before coming into this holy spot, did you take off your pretentious personality? Please tell me that before you walked in here today, you took off your arrogant cockiness. Before you entered this sacred spot, please tell me, please tell me, that you did not walk in as if you owned the place. Please, please reassure me that you did not walk in thinking to yourself, this is just the same old day and we're going to the same old church and we're entering the same old sanctuary and we're having the same old worship service. Please tell me that when you walked in, you had a cognizant, uh, conscious realization that I am about to enter the very sanctuary of God. I'm about to meet with God himself. The God of the universe is about to interact with me and I'm about to interact with him. Please tell me that you at least thought for a moment before you walked in this sacred spot, I'm in God's house on God's day with God's people. Please don't tell me you just took this business as usual just another day at the office and you just walked in without any regard for God Almighty. Please tell me that you realize that when you walked in today you were about to hear from Yahweh himself. The Lord said to Moses, take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy, holy ground. This truly caught the attention of Moses. The Lord continued. He said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out in prayer. I'm concerned about them. It's at this point that Moses must have thought to himself, that's fantastic. I mean, I've been stuck in the desert for 40 years. The Israelites have been in Egypt for 430 years. I mean, God, surely uh, it is a great thing that you are now paying attention and that you're now knowing that your people are enslaved. I'm, I'm so flabbergasted. I'm so elated. I'm so excited that, that, that you have indeed seen the misery of your people. And God continued. He said, I myself have come down to rescue them. I have come down to liberate them. I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to bring them out of that land, that land of bondage, that land of slavery. I have come to bring them out of that land and to bring them into a spacious land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to kick out all the other ites so that the Israelites may take up residence there. I remember as a boy hearing this story, and I thought, a land flowing with milk and honey, how gross is that? But it's not literal milk and honey. It's a symbolic imagery to communicate that 
God was going to take them out of bondage, place them into a place that was posh and beautiful and over-the-top good. And God was going to do this. Throughout the Old Testament, the uh, greatest act of deliverance is this exodus. In fact, all the prophets, they hearken back to God's activity in the exodus as they frame their prophetic language. Whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it really doesn't matter. All the prophets, they look back to how God liberated his children with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God rolled up his sleeves. The Red Sea was no problem for God. Pharaoh and his army wasn't an obstacle. God was able to successfully maneuver the land so the Israelites could cross and they could get uh, into the promised land. God did this in a miraculous way. Every prophet looks back at the Exodus and says that is a picture of deliverance. That is a picture of redemption. That's what it looks like when God shows up. Because whenever God shows up, he really, really shows off. In the New Testament, every gospel writer, every New Testament writer hitches the life and ministry and activity of Jesus to this deliverance motif. Because ultimately, Jesus came to liberate us, not from Egyptian bondage, but from the bondage of sin. That our deliverer is not Moses, our deliverer is Jesus. And Jesus is far greater than Moses. And Jesus, the God-man, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth, lived a perfect life, died on a sinner's cross. And in that moment, he took your place and he uh, took your punishment so that he who knew no sin might become sin for us so that we might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus came and died on the cross so that you might be liberated, so that you might be delivered, so that you might be redeemed from the effect of sin in your life. And though Jesus died on the cross, his dead body was taken off the cross, placed in a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled in front of it. He stayed there Friday, all day Saturday, even early into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. The dead body began to breathe again. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb, showing us that he is who he said he is. And he did what he, what he said he would do. He is God in the flesh. He is the mighty Redeemer. This idea that the activity of Jesus is hitched to the exodus and to deliverance is seen in the words of Jesus. For Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But I have come to set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. From heaven's perspective, the events and activity of Jesus' life was always connected to the deliverance motif of the Exodus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the synoptic gospels, they tell us uh, one significant same story that one day Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up on a mountain, and there Jesus was transfigured before them. The word transfigured means that his face became as bright as a flash of lightning. His clothes were as bright as bleach could get them. And I think that what happened in that moment is that the, the veil of the humanity of Jesus was lifted ever so slightly so that the splendor of his divinity could show through. 
And somehow, in the midst of all that bright, shining divinity of Christ, Peter, James, and John were able to see that they were two silhouettes, uh, one on the right side of Jesus, one on the left side of Jesus. It was Moses and Elijah, uh, two visitors from heaven. They came to talk to Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And they were speaking about his upcoming departure. In the ancient Greek language, that word departure is exodon. It's the exodus. From heaven's perspective, what Jesus was doing is that he was being one greater than Moses. He was going to deliver us from a greater exodus than Egyptian slavery. He was going to liberate us from the bondage of our sin that keeps us in shackles. They spoke to Jesus about his upcoming exodon that was soon to take place in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Peter, being the loudmouth spokesman of the bunch, he thought it would be a great idea to set up three tabernacles so they could worship Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And God spoke up. He said, this is my son. You listen to him. When the cloud dissipated, Peter, James, and John saw that Jesus was standing alone. As quickly as Moses and Elijah had appeared from heaven, that's how quickly they retreated back into heaven. And by the actions and activity of God, what was he saying? He was pointing to Jesus as if to say to Peter, James, and John, this Jesus, he's in a class all by himself. Do not put him on par with Moses and Elijah. Don't construct three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He's in a stratosphere all by himself. The activity of Jesus, the work at Calvary, it is, it is the great act of deliverance in all the Bible, in all of human history. And it is tied to this Exodus motif of deliverance that we find here in Exodus chapter 3. God is all about the business of setting us free so that we may live eternally with him. It is John who says in John chapter 1 verse 12, to all who received him, to all who believed upon his name, he gave the rights to become children of God. Children born not of a human decision or uh, will of a father, but born of God. All people are creations of God, not all people are children of God. Only people who are children of God are those who believe upon the name of Jesus. They believe upon his name. By believing upon his name, we're believing upon his essence, upon his character, upon his activity, that he is who he said he is, and he has done what he said he would do. And so we believe upon his name. The Lord, in our story, said to Moses, I've come down and I'm going to liberate. And this great deliverance is really just a foreshadowing of what will happen when Jesus comes to liberate us from our sins. But in the process, I'm going to liberate the Israelites. I'm going to bring them up out of Egypt. I will kick out all of the Jebusites and Hivites and all the other ites. And, and I will put the Israelites right there in their place. And I will give them the promised land. And Moses must have thought to himself, great. But what does it have to do with me? I'm just a shepherd. I'm on the backside of Mount Horeb. 
I've been in this desert for 40 years. Why are you coming and telling me all of this? Verse 10, so now go. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go. I'm sorry, what'd you say? You, you want me to go? God, do you remember the last time I was in Egypt? It didn't go very well. In fact, there is an Egyptian buried in the sand in Egypt all because of my two fists. So it didn't go very well last time I was there. It's only been 40 years, and I know that people forget some stuff, but they don't forget that kind of stuff. They've got record of that. I, I've got a murder rap sheet on me. I don't think I'm the best dude to go back to Egypt. No, I want you to go. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let God's people go. Who am I that I should go? Not only do I have a murder rap sheet, I'm 80 years old for crying out loud. Why should I be the one to go? Send somebody younger. Send somebody else. I mean, why should I be the Who am I that I should go? God gives promise to Moses. He says, I will be with you. I'll also give you a sign. You'll return right here to this same very mountain, and all of God's people will worship me. Friend, why is it that when God tells us to do something, we immediately, with a knee-jerk response, give him an excuse of why we're not the right ones for the job? Who am I to do this or do that? I mean, who am I to teach that class or to sing in that choir? Who am I to volunteer for that ministry? Who am I to go on that mission trip? Who am I to give that generously? Who am I to speak to my coworker? Who am I to have a gospel conversation with my neighbor? Who am I to make an influence upon that ball team? Who am I? Lord, I am nobody. You've got the wrong guy. You're barking up the wrong tree. Who am I that I should go? And the Lord just says to him, I will be with you. Isn't that enough? And the harsh reality is, oftentimes it's not enough. We know that God is with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And even though we have that promise, and that promise is given not just to Moses, but to all of God's people, we have the promise, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yet we still say to God, God, I'm not the one to do it. What if I go and they ask me your name? Now, the reality is, God has already given his name. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he presses God. He tries to put him in a corner. What if they ask for your name? What is the name of the God who sent me to you? And God says, okay, big boy, you want my name? I'll give you my name. In Hebrew, it's a one-word name. It's really not even a name. It's just four letters that are put together. In Hebrew, it's just Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. You tell them, Yahweh sent me. This is the covenantal God. This is the creator God. This is the one who told the ocean only come so far. This is the one who spoke and everything came into existence. This is the one who taught the sun how to shine, the birds how to fly, and the fish how to swim. This is the one who made the covenant with his people. This is the God who created all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. This is the one true God of the universe. You tell them, Yahweh sent me to you. Friends, every time we come to worship, we worship Yahweh. 
We worship the one, two, e- one true eternal God of the cosmos. It's translated, you tell them I am sent me to you. I am who I am. That's just the best attempt at a phrase to communicate the eternal nature and characteristic of God, the God who was and is and always will be. The eternal, sovereign God of the universe has sent me. The one true God, for there is no other God. That's the God who sent me. And eventually even that wasn't enough. You get to the next chapter and Moses says, what if they make fun of me? I've got a stuttering problem. And, and you know how, God, God, I just stutter. And I stutter even when I'm not nervous. Can you imagine with my knees knocking and my hands shaking as I stand in front of Pharaoh, how bad I'll be fumbling and bumbling through all the words? I've got a stuttering problem. You've got to send somebody else. It can't be me. And the Lord just reminds Moses, I, I'll be with you. Friends, um, why is it that we take our yes off the table? Why is it that we why is it that we say to the Lord, Lord, you've got the wrong person. I cannot do what clearly you are commanding me to do. Friends, here is the valuable lesson of grace that I want to communicate to you from this story. God's compassion for you will always precede his commands to you. God's compassion for you will always precede his commands to you. Before he tells you to go, he will demonstrate his grace. He cares more about who you are than what you do. He demonstrated this clearly in our story, clearly in the conversation that he had with Moses. See, Moses has a 10-4 problem. Many of you have a 10-4 problem. You say, Pastor, what's a 10-4 problem? In verse 4, he communicates his compassion by graciously saying the name twice, Moses, Moses. In verse 10, all the way down in verse 10, he finally gets to the command of, therefore, go. Most of us have a problem because we invert verse 4 and verse 10. Instead of having a 4-10 issue, we've got a 10-4 issue. We switch the passage. We clearly know the command of God, and we know what he's telling us to do, but we don't want to do it. And I submit to you this morning, the reason we don't uh, want to do it is because we don't understand the grace that he's extended to us in his compassion in verse 4. We've got a 10-4 problem. We listen to verse 4. 10, long before we hear verse 4, and God's compassion for you always precedes his commands to you. He will lovingly communicate to you. He'll call you by name, Davin, Davin, Jack, Jack, Sally, Sally, Rebecca, Rebecca. He'll communicate his compassion to you long before he gives you the command to do. He will give you his grace long before he tells you to go and do anything. But so many of us have a 10-4 problem and all we hear are the commands of God. And we don't hear and heed the compassion of God. The reality is, 
God uses a bunch of idiots, doesn't he? You've read the Bible, right? It's stock full of idiots. I mean, Moses is right there in the list. He's a misfit. He offers excuses. You're a misfit. You offer excuses. I'm an idiot. You're an idiot. We would, we would do well in the Bible, right? There's your encouragement for the day. You would have a great story in the Bible because the Bible is full of just idiots. Praise the Lord. I mean, stop and think about it. Abraham was too old. Jacob was too insecure. Leo was just too ugly. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Rahab. She was a prostitute. Jonah was suicidal. Naomi, she said, I'm just a a widow. Martha, she worried a lot and she griped a lot. Thomas was a doubter. Zacchaeus was a thief. Timothy was timid. They're all a bunch of idiots. And God used them. They all offered excuses to God. And God said, I love you. I will use you. I will never abandon you. I will accompany you through every task I'm asking you to do. And like these idiots, we have the same problem. We have a 10-4 problem. We hear verse 10 long before we hear verse 4. The commands of God in verse 10 are clear, aren't they? He said to Moses, I want you to go. That was very clear. The commands of God are clear to us. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery. Obey, forgive, love, go on mission. I mean, the commands of God are clear. But I submit to you this morning that clearer still is the compassion of God. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The majority of this conversation between God and Moses is God convincing Moses of his compassion. The majority of the text is that God wants to say to Moses, look, I'll never leave you. I am with you. I love you. I can use you. Moses, Moses, let me disarm your defensiveness. Moses, Moses, please, I I have selected you in a sovereign way to do a mighty work in my kingdom. The majority of the passage is God convincing Moses of God's compassion. A very small section of the passage is God's command to Moses. But God clearly demonstrates his compassion to us. He spoke to Moses on this mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And he promised that on this very mountain, that later we'll call Mount Sinai, this will be the spot where Moses will lead the people of God. They will worship the God of the people. Moses will ascend the mountain. He will meet God face to face. God will inscribe with his very own finger on two tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. The New Testament will say of Moses, Moses is a friend of God. God demonstrated this not just to Moses but also to Elijah. It was on Mount Carmel where there was a great showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And God showed himself strong and mighty. And he showed that he was the only true God of the entire universe. It was on Mount Calvary where God will demonstrate ultimately and fully his compassion for you and for me. 
For Jesus, the God-man, will die in our place. He will be crucified. He will take upon himself all of our eternal condemnation. He will endure our hell for us so that we may enjoy his presence in his heaven for all of eternity. And though Jesus died and was placed in a borrowed tomb on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Our deliverance is found and bound in the empty tomb of Christ. We have been delivered. We've been rescued. We have been set free. We have been saved. The chains of our sinfulness have been gone. They have been loosed. We are set free. And because of that, we can freely serve the Lord. And God has gone to great lengths to communicate to you and to me his compassion. Because God's compassion always precedes God's commands to you. Before he tells you to go, he always gives you his grace. In fact, I'll go one step further. The only way I can go is because of his grace. The only way that I can go in obedience is because I must know the grace of God that truly is amazing. It's because of his grace. It's because of his compassion that we're enabled to go and obey his commands. And all of our obedience, all of the things he's asking us to do, it's all tied to the reality of Calvary. That God demonstrated his great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so that we might become the righteous of God. So we say yes, our yes is on the table Because of the great compassion of God. So we can sing and we can say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. It's because he lives, I can make it today. It's because he lives, I have meaning today. It's because he lives, I have purpose today. We don't just go through the motions because everything in life is connected. It's tied and tethered to the reality that the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. God demonstrated his great compassion for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross because God's compassion for us always precedes his commands to us. So before we go, we've got to know his grace. And it is through his grace that we are enabled to go. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It's saved. A wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. God's compassion for you always precedes his commands to you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation Lord, we pray that you are honored and glorified. Lord, if there's one listening to my voice and they've never accepted the salvation of your grace through Jesus Christ, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. Lord, if there's one here who simply has that 10-4 problem, we've reversed the passage and we're focusing so much on the commands to the neglect of your compassion. And because of that, we are paralyzed. Oh, Lord, help us today to come and kneel at your altar 
and find help and hope in time of need. If you're drawing us to yourself, let us come. If you're drawing us to this church, let us obey. If you're calling us to go and preach, let us make it known. If you're calling us to be on the mission field forever, let that happen as well. Lord, you speak, we'll respond because we know you are with us and that's enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.